0: Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am going to cover Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to call this The Mystery of God is Revealed. The reason being that there was a mystery that the Gentiles and Jews would be brought together in one body. And it is now being revealed. So Paul's going to be talking about Jew and Gentile unity here in this section. This flows from the context in the last portion of chapter 2. Paul talked about the Jews and Gentiles being built together into one temple, into one dwelling. Again, the theme was unity of Jew and Gentile. So we will continue with that in Ephesians 3.1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... Now... For what reason? And by the way, this this is just a, a a thought that breaks off. It doesn't pick up again until long time later, verse fourteen, which is of course beyond the scope of this audio. So this we'll have to take it up in the next audio how he finishes it off. What he says in Ephesians three fourteen is for this reason I kneel before the Father, and so he says in Ephesians three one for this reason I. Verse 14, kneel before the Father. Well, what reason is he kneeling before the Father? Because the mystery that God has hidden before all, before the foundation of the world that the Gentiles will be a part of the body of Christ with Jews. That's why he kneels before the Father. For that reason, that the Gentiles are brought in and made into one new man with the Jews. He says for this reason, he kneels before the Father. I gave you a summary of it. Let's look at a a summary of the things that Paul was bowing his knees before the Father was the things that he had done for the Gentiles, that God had done for the Gentiles. Let's look at that in specific, specifically in Ephesians 2, 19-22. So then you, meaning Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And it's because of the joy of that that he, verse fourteen, kneels before the Father. Now Paul says in verse one that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Remember he's riding from Rome, he's under house arrest after being shipped to Rome from Caesarea where he was under arrest for allegedly starting a riot in the temple. And so he's under house arrest there in Jerusalem. And that's why he says he's a prisoner. Why? For the sake of you Gentiles. The reason he was in prison is because he was preaching to the Gentiles. The Jews reacted to that. They persecuted Paul in that famous Jerusalem riot and subsequent machinations to have him assassinated. And one of the things the Jews did is they brought him up on charges to the Romans in consequence of which he was sent to Rome so he's the prisoner of Christ Jesus in Rome in order to benefit the Gentiles and the reason he benefited the Gentiles and because he benefited the Gentiles that's the reason he's in jail because he was preaching to the Gentiles the Jews got mad and they it was their riots that put him in jail so he was the prisoner of God he went through all that for the sake of the Gentiles because he cared about the Gentiles Remember, Paul was a prisoner. He was under house arrest. We read this in Acts 28.16. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who was guarding him in Acts 28.30. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. Now, he wasn't in jail because he, because the Romans knew he wasn't guilty of anything. He was only under house arrest. Well, the Romans knew he wasn't guilty. We read in Acts 26.30-32 the king, that's King Herod Agrippa II, the governor, I think it was Festus at the time, Bernice, and those sitting with them got up. Bernice was the wife of King Herod Agrippa II, and those sitting with them got up, and when they had left, they talked with each other and said, these are the Roman big shots. This man is not doing anything to deserve death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, Agrippa's the king, Festus is the governor. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. So Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, knew you that Paul was perfectly innocent. The fact that Paul mentions he's a prisoner shows that he was not at all ashamed of being a prisoner. He knew he hadn't done anything wrong, nothing dishonorable about his situation. And notice he uses the allusion to being a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's not only a prisoner of his Roman jailers, or not jailers, but his Rome, the Roman officials the Roman soldier that's staying with him. He's not only a a physical prisoner, but he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus, a spiritual prisoner, if you will, because Jesus says, do this. And Paul says, I'll do it, Lord. And Jesus says, do that. And Paul says, I will. And Jesus says, jump. And Paul says, how high, Lord. Now, Paul mentions it into this verse that he's prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Remember, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He would go on his trip, as soon as the Jewish Son of God kicked him out, he would then go preach to the Gentiles. He did this several times. I don't have the sights in front of me, but it's well known that that was his pattern, and he was known for being the prisoner of the uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. We go now to Ephesians 3, verses 2 through 3. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. Now Paul breaks up. Breaks off from his statement in verse 1. For this reason, I am the prisoner of, of Christ Jesus, dot, dot, dot. He breaks it off, and now he starts in verse 2, and he starts talking about the mystery, which is the subject of this audio, this section of Scripture. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which is given to me for you, and I'm sure they had heard of it, that if there actually sort of means since, Most Ephesians would know of Paul's ministry because of his long earlier stay in Ephesus. Remember, he stayed there for three years on the third journey. He's now past that. He's in Rome later. And so, of course, they would have heard of it. And so the meaning seems to be sensed to me. The Jameson Fawcett Brown says the Greek shows that no doubt is implied. But I don't know what it is. My little bit of Greek study that I've done whenever I got to a situation like this, the translation was always if, not since. You're supposed to say if, not since. I don't know why. I'm not not enough of a linguist to know, but that's what it means here. Of course they heard about Paul's stewardship of God's grace because he had done an awful lot of work in Ephesus. Now, the NIV study Bible points out another possibility. If this was a circular letter, which many people think it was, then people who didn't live in Ephesus may not have heard much about Paul's stewardship. And the letter would get to people who had not known Paul personally, maybe so. But anyway, I think most probably, hey, Paul is saying, look, my ministry has proven that I've ministered to you Gentiles. I'm a prisoner for you Gentiles. I care about you Gentiles. He says in verse 3 that by, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. Now that word mystery shows up a lot in the gospel in the in the New Testament. And I'm going to read a lot of these verses to you but I'm going to do it in sort of an organized way. Before I do so, we need to remember that mystery was a term that mystery religions used. And they had all these secret rituals and esoteric knowledge and practices that the, that the adherents went through. And nobody ever found out about it because they weren't supposed to tell. And my favorite example is the Eleusinian mysteries in ancient Greece, a little bit before this time. Where even today, people don't know. Scholars don't know what went on with those mysteries because they were secret. But... Paul takes the word and says, yeah, well, God's doings were the Gentiles, and all of his doings were secret, but then they were revealed, and that's the good news. They were revealed through his holy apostles and prophets. So, Paul has mentioned mystery earlier, actually. In the letter, in Ephesians 1, 9 through 9-10, Paul says, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. So, the first mention of mystery is, God is going to sum everything up in Christ. Everything. Christ is going to be all in all. He's going to be head of all. He's going to be ruler of all. So, that's the first part of the mystery that has now been revealed. Well, now he mentions mystery again, and we're going to see that the, the mystery that is now being revealed here is the union of the Jews and the Greeks into one body, the church. Now, as I said, Paul couples mystery with revelation in his, in his writings. Mystery and revelation. The mystery religions didn't do that, but Paul did. I'm going to show that right now and read you four scriptures where mystery is used in connection with the revelation word. Ephesians one nine, he made known to us the mystery of his will. He made known, as the revelation, the mystery of his will. That was the verse I just quoted that all things would be summed up in Christ. Was made known to us, was revealed to us that mystery was. Ephesians three nine. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. That's in our section here is talking about the union of Jews and Gentiles into one church, one body. Notice in Ephesians 3:9 the revelation words: bring to light the mystery. Bring to light the mystery. Galatians 1:26. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but which has now been manifested to his saints. The mystery, which has been manifested, manifested means to be revealed, to show, so everybody can know it. You see the connection. Romans 16:25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, the revelation of the mystery, making it known. So you see that's Paul's general use of the term. Now I'm going to give you some examples of what specific things God uses, that Paul uses the word to refer to. He uses mystery to refer to the Incarnation as a mystery, the Crucifixion as a mystery, God's purpose to sum up all things in Christ as a mystery. That's the third thing. The fourth thing is God's plan to include Gentiles and Jews together in the church. That's the fourth thing. That's a mystery that's being revealed. And the fifth thing is the glorification of the body is a mystery that's to be revealed. Let me show that. The Incarnation is a mystery, 1 Timothy 3.16. And most certainly the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels preached among the nations believed on in the world taken up in glory the mystery of godliness is great he was manifested in the flesh that's the incarnation the crucifixion is a mystery first corinthians 2 1 through 2 and when i came to you brethren i did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony or the mystery of god as the english revised version has it Proclaiming to you the mystery of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the NASB, but NASB used testimony for mystery. A lot of translations do. The NIV says some manuscripts have mystery for testimony. The ERV puts mystery in there. So the mystery of God there is referring to him crucified, Jesus crucified. I proclaim to you the the mystery of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the mystery the crucifixion of Jesus. We've already mentioned God's purpose to sum up all things in Christ. Mentioned in Ephesians 1, 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ, that that all things would be summed up in Christ. The summing up of all things. The fourth mystery that's revealed is God's plan to include Gentiles and Jews together in the church. And that's what we're talking about here in this passage. So I won't read you the scriptures. We'll be doing that as we go through the fifth mystery that's been revealed is the glorification of the body. First Corinthians fifteen fifty one. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. We'll all be resurrected and glorified. That's a mystery. It's been revealed now. Paul's revealed it in First Corinthians fifteen. Now Paul said the revelation of the mist of this mystery was something that he had written to them before. He says in verse. Three that by revelation that was made known to me the mystery as I write as I wrote before in brief and the question is is when did he write that to them one option is that he wrote before in two chapters previous in Ephesians one nine and ten the NIV Study Bible says that perhaps that is what it is. Let me read those verses. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Paul could be referring to that. He said, I just wrote to that to you two chapters previously to where I am now. Of course, he didn't have chapters back then. I know you understand that. But just in the first part of his letter, he's already written to that briefly. It could refer not to those two specific verses, but it could refer to the first two chapters. This is Jameson Fawcett and Brown's view. The first two chapters are, quote, a compendium of the mystery of the gospel in its several parts as predestination, election, redemption, regeneration, and salvation by free grace. So he could be referring to the mystery that I wrote to you in general before or specifically before, specifically in verses 9 and 10 of Ephesians 1 or in general the whole first two chapters. Now Paul says that this mystery was made known to him by revelation in verse 3. Paul was very strong on the idea that his gospel had been revealed to him by revelation. You read through his letters, he's constantly referring to it. Or he's often, he's not, maybe not constantly, he's too strong a word, but he often refers to it. Here's what Adam Clark says about Revelation, quote, The apostle wishes the Ephesians to understand that it was not an opinion of his own, or a doctrine which he was taught by others, or which he had gathered from the ancient prophets, but one that came to him by immediate revelation from God, as he had informed them before in a few words, referring to what he had said in Ephesians 1, 9-12. Clark takes the view that the before is those two verses in Ephesians 1. But you see, Paul, the idea that Clark is trying to show here is that Paul wanted the Ephesians to know this is not just my opinion, folks. This is a revelation from God. You have really got to be confident in yourself to go around saying you heard from God and you saw things because it's subjective. How can you prove it? You've got to do a lot of stuff to prove it. You've got to have a lot of cred. You've got to have done a lot of things for the people you're speaking to before they're going to believe you. You've got to have character, in other words, because anybody say they have a revelation like this Todd Bentley guy saying he heard from Emma or William Brandon the cultist I heard from Emma a nine foot white white angel and everybody goes woo he's a prophet no he's shacking up with his secretary and what he was doing he's now gotten involved in some homosexual activities with young interns but oh no he had a revelation you see what I mean a revelation you know prophets are always making terrible mistakes and making fools out of themselves and I don't doubt that sometimes they see what God has in store for today, but it's hard to convince me and hard to convince anybody. You've got, you got to show me character and you've got to show me some success if, you, if you're going to start predicting the future, at least. So anyway, Paul, he didn't have any problem with that. He just said, that's a revelation that let me know this mystery. Starting with verse 4 and 5 in Ephesians 3, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Well, Paul says by referring to this, by referring to what? Well, it could be referring to his, Paul's stewardship of God's grace that he mentions in verse 9, or it could be referring to in verse 10 where Paul says he is dealing with the revelation of the mystery. Whatever it is, the stewardship of God's grace that Paul had for the Gentiles or the revelation of the mystery that the Gentiles were going to be united with the Jews of the church, if you refer to that, Ephesians, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Because Paul has got a track record. As I said before, he's talking about revelation, but he's got a track record. He's worked hard for the Gentiles, and so they can understand what he's talking about when he talks about the mystery of Christ. Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Now here, mystery is referred to just mystery of Christ in general. What does that mean? Well, John Gill says the knowledge of Christ was not so extensive nor so clear as now. It lay hid in types and shadows, in obscure prophecies and short hints. Well, that's one knowledge, one option as to what the knowledge of Christ was. It could be the knowledge of the plan for the Gentiles, which is the context, as John Gill says. quote, This may have respect particularly to the calling of the Gentiles, as appears from the following words. Now. We have a slight problem here because in verse 5 Paul says that other generations this revelation of the ministry has not been made known to the sons of men. And if you say well that's the, the fact that the Gentiles are going to get saved and, and if you say that was not made known to the sons of men that's not true. Because as Adam Clark puts it quote the calling of the Gentiles was made known by the prophets in different ages of the Jewish church that that was so is exceedingly clear. And it is. Let me read some verses to you. Isaiah 49, 6. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, that's the Gentiles, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So Isaiah clearly says the Gentiles are going to be in the people of God. Isaiah 56, 6-7. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. The foreigners. To minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds my holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain, I will make and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. All the peoples, that means all the Gentiles. Romans fifteen nine through 12. Now here Paul is going to quote Second 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty, Psalm eighteen forty-nine, Deuteronomy thirty-two forty-three, Psalm one seventeen one, and Isaiah eleven ten, all to bring out one point: the Gentiles are to be included. Let me read Romans fifteen nine through twelve, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy, as it is written. Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Well, I mean, that's that's a slam dunk, folks. The gospel was revealed to be universal from the beginning, and for Jews to ignore all that, all that scripture shows that they were not looking at the Scripture objectively. Now, going back to our problem here, this mystery in Christ in Ephesians 3, verses 4 and 5, this mystery in Christ is said by Paul to not be made known to the sons of men, but here it is made known. Well, if you're going to hold that that's what Paul is talking about here, you have to go to the next phrase. It has not been made known as it has now been revealed. In other words, it was made known before, as in all those Old Testament prophecies I just quoted. It has been made known to the sons of men, but the fullness of the Gentiles, of how they're going to come in, as it has now been revealed, that was not revealed in the past. What had not been made known about the Gentiles in the past, that they would be part of one new body with the Jews, and uncircumcised no less. That was not made known. All those prophets prophesied that the Gentiles would have the light of Jesus, the light of the Messiah, but that they would be one with Jesus. The Jews, no, that was going even farther than they knew. So it could be that this is referring to the the mystery that Paul is referring to in verse 4 of Ephesians 3 is referring to the fact that the Jews and Gentiles would be made one into one new body. Or it could just be the mystery of Christ in general was reviewed to the Gentiles if you want to take it that way. It has not been revealed as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. In union with the Spirit, if you will, because apostles and prophets are preaching through revelation of the Holy Spirit. Now, those prophets, of course, are New Testament prophets because Old Testament prophets. Because it says, as it has now been revealed, so obviously the prophets are being referred to as the New Testament prophets. We go now to verse 6, Ephesians 3. To be pacific. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. That's why I think it's talking about the union of the Gentiles in one body is the mystery of Christ that Paul's referring to in verse 4 because he explains it in verse 6 to be pacific. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. And again, it was prophesied that the Gentiles were going to come into the kingdom but that they would be fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers with the Jews. Well, now, that... Was not that was a mystery. That had not been contemplated. Notice that the word fellow is used three times in one verse to make point, to make the point, which is unity of the Jew and the Gentile. Fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. We go to Ephesians three, seven through nine. Well that's the middle of a sentence, so let me go back and pick up the last part of verse six. Fellow partakers. The Gentiles are fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, verse 7, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Of which I was made a minister, then I have, he has a servant. So he's a servant or a slave. He's made a minister of the gospel, according to the gift of God's grace, not according to Paul's natural talents and educations, of which he had plenty. He had plenty of those, but no, it's, he was made a minister, and he immediately is humble. He says, no, it's not by me. It's by the gift of God's grace, unmerited favor. And to show more humility, in verse 8, he says, to me, the very least of all saints. Not only the least of all apostles, he says in another scripture somewhere, but he says to the very least of all saints. Now, that's humble. The NIV Study Bible says his modesty was genuine, even if we disagree with his evaluation. And ladies and gentlemen, I do disagree with Paul's evaluation here, because that man was incredible. He's the best missionary there ever was. He's even better than Hudson Taylor. He was something else. But why does he call him the very least? Well, maybe he's thinking of all the persecution of the church he engaged in. Could be. That probably might have have kept him humble. Kind of sad, you know, what he had done, you know. But he had been, of course, forgiven for it. Jameson Foster and Brown makes that point as that Paul calls himself the least of all saints, not merely the least of all apostles, but the least of all saints. And then he says, This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. Grace. Again, grace, 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 grace. All God's unmerited favor, the ability to preach to the Gentiles was grace to preach what? The unfathomable riches of Christ. Something that's unfathomable, a sea that is unfathomable means you can't get to the bottom of it. You drop the rope off the side of the boat and you drop it and drop it and drop it and drop it and you don't reach the bottom. That's how much riches in Christ they are. He he uses that word riches a lot in Ephesians, the riches of God's grace. And to bring to light what is the administration of the ministry in verse 9, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Again, there's bring to light the administration of the ministry which was hidden. Things which are hidden are brought to light. That's how God does. He's a God of revelation. And this God created all things. At the end of verse nine, the King James has "all things created, all things by Jesus Christ." That is not in the original Greek. Jameson Clark, Clark uh, Adam Clark, excuse me, says that this phrase "by Jesus created all things in Him" by Jesus Christ. The "by Jesus Christ" is indisputably spurious. Jameson Foss and Brown mentions that the oldest manuscripts omit "by Jesus Christ." However, even if the King James screwed up on that particular translation by using the wrong manuscript or whatever they did. Other scripture does show that Jesus, as a matter of fact, did create all things, Colossians 1.16. For everything was created by him, by Jesus, in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Now, all things could mean all the things in the material world. It could be all spiritual things. But, of course, I believe it means everything, material and spiritual so God is said to create all things, and Jesus is said to create all things. God is said to create all things right here in verse verse 9. The ministration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. So God explicitly is said to create all things in Colossians 1.16. Jesus creates all things. Once again, showing that God and Jesus are both divine. Different persons, same God. Ephesians three ten through 11, Paul continues, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Well, that's the middle of a sentence again, so we need to go back and get verse 9 here to get a complete sentence. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, verse 10, so that the manifest, manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Well, before we go to verse 11, we need to know what the so that is there for. So that what's the reference? Well, he Paul was made a minister to preach. He was made a minister, a steward of the of the gospel of God in verse 7, and he was given the gift to preach to the Gentiles in verse 8. Because of that, because he was a minister, because he he could he had a gift to preach, he did that. Verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. Because of his preaching, the wisdom of God would be made known through the church. The wisdom of God, the NMV study Bible points out, it takes an awful lot of wisdom to do the impossible task of uniting Jews and Gentiles. I mean, you talk about two groups of people that have a hard time getting together, the Jews and the Gentiles. Number one, I mean, you can take the French and the English in Canada, you can take uh, black people and white people in the South. You can take you, you can take any group you want. Nothing compares to the trouble the Jews and the Gentiles had. Nothing, but now the wisdom of God is being made known that the Jews and Gentiles are one. Now, in contrast to past ages, Ephesians three nine, which is the last verse I shed. I read, Paul says to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages who created all things, to shed light now. So the now is in contrast to ages past. Ephesians 3.9 shows this ages past, the administration of the mystery hidden for ages, ages past, but now it's being revealed. It's being revealed to whom? Well, it's being made known through the church, to whom? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Of course, it's revealed to humans, too, but also, Paul says, revealed to churches and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, what are those rulers and authorities? Here's a couple of options. A, angels. B, demons. Well, that makes sense. But then there's a third option from Adam Clark, Jewish rulers. Well, let me just take that. Made known to the Jewish rulers in heavenly places. I don't know how Jewish rulers can be in heavenly places. So, I don't know. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. I have had several opportunities of showing that this sort of phraseology is frequent among the Jews and indeed not seldom used in the New Testament. Rulers and authorities, meaning earthly magistrates. Yeah, but in heavenly places? Uh uh, I don't think so. So let's look at is it it angels or or demons? Well, angels. Here's some scriptures Colossians 1.16 For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and and invisible. Whether the thrones and dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. and that would be angels and generals, angels in general, both good and bad. Originally all good, First Peter 1.12, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, if angels long to look into things of salvation, it makes sense that God would want to reveal that mystery to the rulers and authorities, to the angels. They long to look at the plan of salvation for the Gentiles, and so God makes it known to them. So that seems logical to me. God is revealing the mystery of the Gentiles being one with the Jews to the angels in heaven. Here's another example of a verse that might hint at that. 1 Timothy 3.16 By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit. Seen by angels. Seen by angels. So Jesus is being watched by angels. The angels long to look at Jesus and his salvation. They want to know. And so Paul is saying, hey, it's been revealed in the heavenly places to the rulers and authority, the angels. On the other hand, as Jameson fossen Brown points out, the expression rulers and authorities can be used for demons. Rulers and authorities are a similar phrase. For example, Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers. Against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness, where? In the heavenly places. Now here I would say heavenly places would be the sky, not heaven, because prince of the power of the air is where demons like to fly around in the air. So I'm not sure that, that this verse would apply to in heaven where God is revealing things to the rulers and authorities. Look at Ephesians 2.2, 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, "...of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience." There's another ruler and authority in the air, in the heavenly places being air. Colossians 2.15, "...when he disarmed the rulers and authorities," that's when he died on the cross and conquered them and rose again from the dead, "...he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him." So their rulers and authorities, refers to demons. But it doesn't say the demons were in heavenly places. When they got triumphed over. So I really think this is angels. In my humble opinion, I wouldn't bet my life on it. But I think Jesus is revealing the truth to the angels. Things into which they longed to look. Longed to look. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's the eternal purpose? Option A, for Christ to rule the universe. This is the NIV Study Bible's idea. It was God's eternal purpose for Christ to rule the universe. Christ ruling the church was in accordance with this. Christ taking headship of the church is in preparation for him taking head of all creation, as the NIV Study Bible says. That's an interesting speculation. Here's another option. According to God's eternal purpose refers to all things having to do with salvation. God had eternally planned before the foundation of the world. I'm going to give you a long quote here by John Gill. The whole of salvation in which is displayed the great wisdom of God is according to a purpose of His. The scheme of it is fixed in the council of peace. The thing itself is effected in pursuance of it. Christ, the Redeemer, was set forth in it. His incarnation, the time of His coming into the world, His sufferings and death with all their circumstances were decreed by God. And the persons for whom Christ became incarnate, suffered and died, were appointed unto salvation by Him. And the application of it to them is according to His purpose." the time when, the place where, and the means whereby souls are converted, are all settled in the decrees of God, the gospel itself, the preaching of it by such and such persons. It's use to make men see the mysteries of grace and the fellowship of them and to make known these things to the angels of heaven are all according to a divine purpose. And this purpose is eternal or is in the mind of God from all eternity, for no new will can arise in him. No purpose, resolution, or decree can be made by him in time, which was not in his breast from everlasting, and his purpose concerning the salvation of man must be eternal. Now that is a bodacious quote from John Gill. That's why I had to read it. According to the eternal purpose of God. I mean, nobody can do it better than John Gill. Jameson Foster Brown says maybe it's a little bit more particular than just the things of salvation. Maybe it could be that the salvation would be preached to the Gentiles was what Paul was referring to when he said the eternal purpose of God. Well, who knows exactly what Paul's talking about? Since John Gill did such a wonderful job of explaining that it referred to all things having to do with salvation, I'm going to go with Gill there saying that all things having to do with salvation was in accordance with eternal purpose. The eternal purpose was all things having to do with salvation. He purposed to, to save the world and... The manifold wisdom of God was made known to that effect to the rulers in heaven and the angels in heaven, I'm going to say. And this revelation of God's eternal purpose, this revelation of God's wisdom to the rulers and authorities in heaven was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, it all goes together. The merging of the Jews and the Gentiles is all according to the eternal purpose of God, which has to do with the salvation of the elect. We go now to Ephesians three twelve and 13 and we'll finish this section up in whom well who's the in whom referred to we go back to the end of verse 12 this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord verse 12 in whom because always referring to Jesus in whom Jesus we have boldness and confident access through faith in him therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf for they are your glory We have boldness and confident access, so therefore you don't need to worry about me, guys. Yeah, I'm suffering. I'm in jail, but hey, don't worry about me. Because we can go to the God, the Father, in boldness and have faith in Him and ask for our succor and our help and our troubles and our tribulations. Confident access, that refers to into the Holy of Holies, using Old Testament language, as John Gill says. Here's a quote from Gill. Christ is the way of access, union to Him gives right of access. Through his mediation his people have audience of God and acceptance with him, both of person and service. And this access is with boldness, which denotes liberty of coming, granted by God, and a liberty in their own souls to speak out their minds plainly and freely, and in holy courage and intrepidity of soul." Being free from servile fear or a spirit of bondage, which is owing to the heart being sprinkled from an evil conscience. Well, like I say, nobody can say it better than John Gill. We can walk right into the throne room of God. The access door is wide open. How? By faith, which means trust, belief. Now, my version, Home Christian Study Bible, says faith in him. We can walk into the door of God's throne. We have confident throne room. We have confident access to faith in him. The King James has confidence of the faith of him. Now, you know, when you get these genitives in the Greek, you can either translate them subjectively or objectively. Faith in him means we have subjective faith in Christ. But the objective translation that the King James uses, we have got the faith of him, shows that it is Christ's faithfulness that keeps us that lets us have confidence access rather than our faith. Now, of course, looking at it from the Greek, you can go either way. Who knows? It's a translator's choice. But just think about it it, I, it puts more emphasis on Christ's faithfulness when you say, by the faith of Christ, we can walk right into that throne room. Now, to finish up, Paul says in verse 13, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. How can the tribulation of Paul be for the glory of the Ephesians? Well, here's Adam Clark's view. Paul felt like it was an honor for him to suffer for the cause of Christ. It gave him glory to suffer for Christ. And because the Ephesians were all for the same cause as Paul, they shared that honor. So, to see Paul suffer for Christ, the Ephesians are going to suffer for Christ to see Paul get honor for that suffering, the Ephesians are also going to get glory for that suffering. Adam Clark also says that Paul is encouraging them not to be ashamed that their apostle is in jail. Here's a quote. The sufferings, therefore, of your apostles are honorable to you and to your cause, and far from being any cause why you should faint or draw back like cowards in the day of distress. They should be in an additional argument to induce you to persevere. Don't be ashamed of me in jail. My sub- tribulations are for your glory, Don't, not for your shame. Don't lose heart and be ashamed because I'm in the gospel. Be afraid and ashamed. No, my jailing is for your glory because the gospel is going to be spread because of my jailing. Here's a, another. Here's a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. Quote, my tribulations are your spiritual glory as your faith is furthered thereby. I suffer for you. You believe in God more because of what I'm doing for you. And therefore, you get more glory for that. So it's not exactly clear what Paul meant that my tribulations are for your glory. But I think the idea, Clark's idea, that he's referring to them to his situation being under arrest, and that's nothing to be ashamed of. It's actually something to be proud of, and the and the Ephesians should be proud of it too, ladies and gentlemen. I'm finished with Ephesians chapter three, verses one through thirteen. In our next audio, we're going to take up the end of chapter three, verses fourteen through twenty, and we'll see Paul making an awesome prayer for his Ephesian. Brothers, a really awesome prayer. When we look at it, you'll see that in the next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one.